0: Right. Today's scripture comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. We're going to be reading that uh, in the ESV. Uh, there are a few Bibles there, are ESVs, if you want to grab that uh, to follow along, because we are going to do a responsive reading, which means that I'll read the first verse and everyone will respond together in unison. Uh, the verse after that will keep going back and forth until the end. So we'll give you a moment to look that scripture up. Also, you can look that up you know, if you have a Bible app or brush your own Bible as well. Um, Again, it's Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. And uh, if you're ready to read the scripture, if you could please stand as able. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us today. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient to the day is its own trouble the word of god for the people of god thanks be to god amen you may be seated all right, friends, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome our guest speaker, uh, Pastor Pete Chung from Houston, Texas. He comes here uh, to join us uh, with his son, Mason, and Mason has been awesome. We've had a great time playing with him in the snow, and uh, it's just been such a joy. Pastor Pete is a brother, I mean, really a dude that I, I think our hearts beat in similar ways, uh, and it's been very uh, just gratifying to get to know this brother And so, we're really excited to have him speak for all of LGM today. So, could we we just give a warm welcome to Pastor Pichai? Thank you, Thank you.
1: I'm hoping the slides are okay. I always have trouble with this back in Houston. I'm thankful for the the liturgy, the way that y'all do worship. It's been really um, life-giving to me, so thankful. And I think I had the slides for the scripture. so we'll just flip through those. Oh, there we go. Um, So... Before we get to that, you know, we'll go here and then we'll go back. Um, Just for those who weren't at the retreat, just as a little bit of a kind of a backdrop, we've been going through kind of this idea of what it means to live a true life as a disciple of Christ. That there's got to be more than just kind of the things that we always do. Come to church through these programs and go to a small group. And while all those things are really great, but there's got to be something more to it than that. Because I think what we find is that we can do all these things for a very, very long time. If you've been a Christian for a long time, going to church for a long time, I think sometimes we realize after a while that our lives are still just mired with the same kind of anxiety and pain and hurt um, and doubt and all these things. And our life doesn't really kind of start to live for the gospel. And so we wanted to kind of look at what does this look like? Get at the reality of scripture get at the reality of these things. So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount kind of in pieces because I feel like that's the best way to really look at what life is like. Um, just as a precursor, I wanted to kind of Tell you, um, that what happens with the Sermon on the Mount is that God begins, or Jesus begins, and he says that the kingdom is at hand. And what he's announcing is that there's a new reality. There's a new king, right? And we explain at the retreat that whenever a new king or a new president or whatever, reality changes, whether you like it or not, something changes. And God is saying something has indeed changed and is changing. And our lives have to reflect that reality. And so when you hear this today, and we've been doing it at the retreat, when we hear this today, we're going to talk about freedom and what it lives to live a life of freedom, for that's what the gospel is all about. But you have to hear it in such a way that that you hear that this is indeed what it is. We talked about being salt and light, that you are salt and light, not that you will be or you should try to be or that you will aspire to be, but that you are. And Because if you don't hear it this way, then this will become very, very frustrating. It will be idealism. A romantic idea that you cannot get, or it'll be oppressive because you'll try and try and try to live this kind of life and you'll be like, man, I suck and I cannot do it. And they'll become very oppressive to you. So that's kind of what we've been doing. And then as the fourth kind of part of this, we get to the latter end of uh, Matthew chapter six and then he begins to talk about this thing. But I want to begin with a quote from Dallas Willard. Um, and he wrote this great book where, where I get a lot of this stuff from. But he says this, says, having shown us true well being and the goodness of the kingdom heart. Jesus now, in Matthew 6, alerts us to the two main things that will block or hinder a life constantly interactive with God and healthy growth in the kingdom. Two things that will basically not allow you to live the kingdom life. And we looked at this last night. The first is the desire to have the approval of others, especially for being devout. And the second we'll look at today, the desire to secure ourselves by means of material wealth. That one of the things that will block us from living the life that God wants to live us is desire. Is the desire, which is not a bad thing, we'll look at that a little later, but to secure ourselves, to give ourselves security by the means of the things that we gain, material wealth and things. And this can mean a lot of things, and again, we'll look uh, into it a little bit more. But I think what Jesus is trying to claim here, right, is this idea, right, that there's freedom to be had. And that the freedom life, the life of the kingdom is a reality that is indeed saying that you can live a life that is anxiety free. That our lives are supposed to be marked by not a whole lot, if at all, anxiety. And that's a striking statement to make, isn't it? Because if we're just being honest with our lives, our lives are full of it. If you wake up five minutes late in the morning, you're all all of a sudden instantaneously start with anxiety, just 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 you know. But Christ is saying that indeed our lives are ones that can be marked by lack of or free of anxiety. And so I wanted to take a look at that, right? Because it's really interesting that the second obstacle to the authentic Christian life, uh, Christ says, is that we want to secure ourselves, that we desire for a security, we desire to be safe. Safes are a very interesting thing if you know uh, what they are. They're generally this um, thick, indestructible, generally metal box with a lock. We call it a safe because we put our treasures in it to keep them safe from the enemies or all dangers. It's a security box. So Jesus, right from the jump, kind of tackles our tendency to care about not only the opinions of others, as we talked about last night, but to ind- Indeed, that we will indeed try to secure our things via any way possible. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that we are people who treasure treasures, and depending on what we treasure, right? Depending on what we treasure, right, that we will indeed have our lives either filled with anxiety, worry, stress, or the opposite, freedom, life, love, and joy. So the question that you have to start off with is today, ask yourself, which life do you want to live? Do you want to live one that's marked by anxiety, worry, and stress, or a life that's marked by freedom, love, and joy? I think that's a fairly simple question to ask, and of course the answer to that question I hope is simple for you, but of course it's much harder um, and easier said than done. But if you look at the scripture from the outset, it looks like these are three maybe separate sayings, right? Or clo- but uh, kind of wisdom sayings that Jesus is giving. You. But if you look closer, it's actually one big, large chunk of text that's all kind of focusing on the same thing. And the way that you know that is because there's a word there in your scripture. It says, "For this reason" or "therefore." And then when ooh, and whenever I, I try to teach this, very well, but whenever you see the word "therefore" in the Bible, you got to ask this question: What is the "therefore"? Therefore because it's basically saying that there's something that he's trying to connect in the text and again what he's, what Jesus is basically saying is that anxiety and worry is rooted in the decisions that we make regarding the things that we treasure the things that we fill our visions with and the things that master our hearts which means that if we want to live a life free of anxiety and again I hope that that's what you want then we have to dig into a few things that will help us to do so and that's Movement of the heart. Three corollaries or consequences of these movements of our hearts. And then three decisions that we'll have to make based on these. So I know it's a little bit of a kind of a rigid academic look, but um, I think it's really helpful to look at this one. But let's just kind of jump in and look. First movement of the heart. I am a treasurer. Did you know that to be human is to be a treasurer of treasures? To be human is to invest in the things that you treasure. To not have treasures is not to be human. Do you know anyone who doesn't treasure anything? Anyone? Anyone who can claim, I don't treasure anything. I am free of all things that I treasure or desire or want to keep safe. Children and toys, stuffed animals. Why do you think Frozen 2 is a thing? My son Mason, he brought with him his dog toy. In Korean, he used to call it mongmongi, it's the word for dog, but then he's a Pokemon fan so then he named it Ma because it's Mung so he took the first thing and apparently he has like evolutions where you become different things he can explain to you later but anyways he brought it with him <laughs> and this morning he's like where's Mu?" and I was like I don't know you better find it <laughs> and oftentimes, what we treasure right if we're being honest what we treasure are things that can be worthless to everyone else but me a picture a love letter an heirloom of something Everyone is a treasure of something, regardless of who you are. To this point, Willer says, nothing degrades people more than to scorn or destroy or deprive them of their treasures. If you watch any action movie, especially one that feature Bruce Willis, mess with the main guy's mom, daughter, son, or wife, and the whole movie turns. You can do anything, or maybe a dog. Anything! And the whole thing, it's like the, the, the superhero of the movie, right? He seems really normal and everything's going terribly and the moment you mess with his mom or his wife or his daughter then all of a sudden he becomes superhuman and the whole movie changes. The moment they mess with that one treasure you know the movie's going to end in 20 minutes. It's over. And it's a simple understanding, right? And we humans, we treasure because we want to secure them against the uncertainties of tomorrow, don't we? Cuz we just don't know. And by the way, this isn't a bad thing, right? Jesus tells us this. I mean, look at the passage. He says, "Do not store for yourself treasures on earth, but rather store them in heaven." I think we mistake this passage saying that Jesus isn't telling us to treasure. No, that's absolutely wrong. What he's saying is there's a right way to treasure and a wrong way to treasure. Like this, but maybe not like this. There's a comparison that he's doing. Also, don't mistake it that Jesus isn't saying that we should not treasure for ourselves. People have taken this passage to say that you shouldn't be selfish with your treasure. No, no, no. If you look at the passage, again, it says, store for yourself in both. Don't store for yourself this way, but store for yourself this way. The issue at hand isn't that we tend to be selfish or that our treasures are selfish. No, 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 no. I think the issue is that we are foolish with our treasures in the sense that we aren't selfish enough to treasure the right things. It's why C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes of all time, says this, If we consider the unblemished, unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In Texas, we don't get any snow. They have to make fake snow and have these little things outside where they bring in a bunch of snow. It's ridiculous. And it covers a little grass field in your neighborhood. If you live in one of those suburban neighborhoods, which we do, right? And then they put out little slides and stuff and it's supposed to be great, but all around you is not snow, just this little patch of snow. It's really weak sauce. And then you take a Houstonian like my son and you bring him here and it snows, it is totally different. He's never gonna want to go to any of those things ever again, because he'd be like, this is not it. <laughs> and his brother and sister, who are insanely jealous that we got to do these things, like sled in the snow and make a snowman and do all these things, they're gonna be like, let's go to this thing. And Mason's gonna be like, nah, bro, I'm good. <laughs> that ain't real snow. Go to Michigan. <laughs> we are people who treasure. And then the cholerary, the immediate consequence of that is that our hearts then follow our treasures or our investments. Notice the order. Our tre- where our treasure is, there is our heart also. The word heart in the Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, describes the control center or the command center from where everything flows of our bodies. Where your treasures are, either on earth or in heaven, is where your control center will be. And therefore, that's How it will function. So if you want to know what is wrong with your heart in many ways, you should look at your treasure. Or where your treasure is, as Jesus says. Then the first decision that you must make is this. Will we treasure treasures in heaven or treasures on earth? That's the thing. You will all treasure, but ask yourself, where is my treasure maybe? I don't really like that word, where, but that's what Jesus is asking And to be sure, on earth and in heaven, Jesus isn't referring to a location, but a kind or a type of treasure. The question that Jesus is getting at is a treasure and its durability or its longevity. How long it will last. Treasuring things on earth is not a smart treasuring or investment strategy. Why? Because things on earth are profoundly stupid and insecure and subject to corrosion and decay. Everything on earth will not stay intact. It will indeed one day Die or corrode or disappear. The examples he gives is moths are natural corrosion, rust is the time corrosion, and thieves are human corrosion. Nothing is safe. He's saying, if you live life long enough, you know this. Here might be a deadly so storm. I don't know what it is here in Michigan, but in Houston, you know what it is? It's it's water. We hear that a storm is coming. I've never been afraid of rain. And then I lived in Houston long enough. And then whenever torrential rain comes, I shake a little. I've seen houses floating. Right? You know. Nothing. And what's really interesting is if you notice, the more you have, if you're fortunate enough to have much, the more energy you spend protecting the more that you have. You buy houses or bigger houses to make yourself feel secure. You buy cars, fancy technologies. But the very next thing that you do is that you buy more technology to secure your securities. You buy a phone, then you got to get a case. You buy a house, then you got to get a security system. Then you got to get, a, then you get you know, the, all the things. Then you got to get a doorbell that has a thing because apparently that's a thing. <laughs> Then you put everything on the cloud, but then after you get the cloud, you got to get the cloud security, the VPN, the rate storage, and all these things. It's what, and what we find out is that our things aren't actually all that secure because all we're doing is paying more money to secure the things that are supposed to secure us. So Jesus is asking, Are you going to invest in God and His things or the things of the earth? For the treasures in heaven are things which no force can harm or decay. They're eternal. They will never fade. And so then what are the treasures in heaven? And again, it's not about the location, but type. And I'll just give you a couple examples. You, his people, are indeed a treasure. So we invest in his people. Our young people are indeed his treasure. We invest in his people. Creation is indeed his thing. He will bring the new heaven and the new earth down and redeem all this thing. Indeed, we care and invest into that (coughs) My own life is indeed a treasure that God indeed invests in. Look at the cross, the life that he gives. All of this are treasures. These relationships in here are indeed what we invest in because they will be eternal. So then movement number two is that you and I, we have a worldview. Did you know that each and every single one of us has a set of deeply held presuppositions about life? The way that you think. We all have a vision of reality. We all have a way and understanding that the world works a certain way. And if you think this is difficult, it's not. It's just things that we believe are true. For instance, you might have grown up, if you're Korean, then you might have believed this idea that you have to work hard and play hard. Actually, I got a little gift packet, a little gift bag, and it says, work hard and play harder. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe you believe that good things come to those who do good. That's a way that people look at the world. Really funny. When uh when, when my kids were actually when Mason was very little, right? Um when asked, um uh when asked, I think someone at school like asked him, like, hey, um, do mommies and daddies fight? And then Mason goes, they don't fight. Like mommies and daddies, they don't fight. That's not a thing. And everyone was like, What are you talking about? And he's like, that's not a thing. My mommy and my daddy, they don't fight. That's not a thing. So his worldview was shaped by this idea. In Mason's world, men are better cooks than women because I am the better cook at home. <laughs> it's a worldview. It's what he lives with. We have to tell him, that's not normal, Mason. You have to, you know, so he's learning, right? Every single one of us has a worldview, the way that you understand the world works. So then the corollary, right after that, is that our worldview and the vision of reality affects all of our lives Just as the heart is the control center of the body, our eyesight, Jesus says, affects how we live and understand the world. See, if you have bad eyesight, you know this. I have very terrible bad sight. Everyone is a blur right now. But the moment you put this on, you're like, aha. (laughs) If your eyes are good and clear, then the whole body is full of light, God says. But if your eyes are bad, then the whole body is full of darkness. He's speaking metaphorically that the eye is a division and a department of the heart, if you want to look at it that way. And therefore, what you fix your eyes is what you fix your heart on. And what you fix your eyes and your heart on is how you will live your life. My professor says, what you fill your vision with is what you will end up becoming. It's why it's a very understandable but very terrible thing. But most children who grow up in very, very difficult homes end up doing the exact same thing when they grow up. Because it's all they've ever seen. What you feel your eyes is what you end up desiring and your hope and your dreams or your action. I don't know if you've seen this commercial. There's a state farm commercial. That's Chris Paul. He used to play for the Houston Rockets. So it's all over Houston, although he's not there anymore. But if you've seen this commercial, it's him and his state farm agent and they're sitting on top of a car and they're looking at the clouds. Sorry. I didn't want to play the video because it might have been too whatever. But anyways, they're looking at the clouds and they're just kind of looking at the clouds and the state farm agent's like, Oh yeah, Chris like, Chris Paul's like, do you see that cloud? And he's like, Yeah, I see that cloud. And he's like, Yeah, I see you. That's your house and it's being robbed and like everything is some sort of terrible scenario where an insurance agent has to come in and secure it and then Chris is like, you need to get out more that's the idea, for the insurance agent, that's all he sees his whole eyes and vision is all this it's a great understanding of what this is what you fill your eyes with is what you indeed believe about the world so the decision that we must make about all this is what will you allow to fill your eyes again, we become like that which we focus our visions Jesus emphasized the whole body. Everything is light or everything is dark. It's either all light or all dark. So then will you desire hope? Will you want light? Or will you desire darkness and the like? You will become what you fill your eyes with. So what are you going to fill your eyes with? That's why I don't watch scary movies. I can't. the whole rest of the next day or the next couple days that's all that's running in my mind it's not even like a weird like I'm scared of everything it's just, just, just dark then movement number three is that we are worshiper. did you know something or someone is controlling our lives at all times again I told us that we are people who adore and treasure and worship things did you know that's the way you were made? It's why everyone loves superheroes. It's why every kid on the planet has had indeed some pair of underwear that had a superhero on it. Mason, what underwear? Oh, actually, your underwear doesn't have it anymore. We, got, we, we grew you up into boxers, briefs, or whatever. But Connor right now, my second son, indeed, he's probably got Yoda on his butt right now. <laughs> there you go. It's ingrained into our design, a desire to need to worship. I have, I have a thing that I say, dogs bark, cats meow, and humans, they worship. We will all serve something or someone else, even if that someone or something is myself. And oftentimes, indeed, this is what we find, is that we worship ourselves the most. Our lives, the ones we orient everything around, the one we serve and seek in ourself, is ourself. We will all worship. We are made to be that way. But then the instant consequence of the corollary is that you can only serve one God at a time. Jesus says, you cannot have two masters, verse 24. And what what he means is very true. Because if you understand it, if you're a slave, you literally can only have one master. You literally can't be a slave and have two. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) It's like not a thing, right? And specifically then he says, you can only have one master and it will either be money or And that word wealth is actually, or money, depending on what translation you have, I have the NASB here, right? Is this a word, mammon, Greek word. But mammon isn't also or only limited to money. Actually, mammon is related to the word amon, right? Which is indeed, that which one trusts. So if you understand mammon, then you understand that anything that we find our securities in... Anything that we think that we secure ourselves against the insecurities of the world, that's your mammon. And to be clear, let me make it absolutely clear. Mammons in and of themselves are not bad. They are good. Or else why would you make them your mammon? We're not stupid people. You trust them because indeed they can be good, but they cannot, must not be your master. Because you can only have one. Because whatever your master is, it means that God is no longer your master then. If you try to have two, Jesus says you will be devoted to the one and hate the other, a.k.a. you will have to choose one. What Jesus is telling us is that our hearts can only have room for one all-encompassing loyalty. The thing that you would choose when pushed to the end. When you're put, sorry for the reference, but if someone is pointing a gun to your head and you got to choose one or the other, you can only have one, you can't have both. No matter what that is, whether it's your career or your money or your power or whatever, even the best things, your family, you can only have one. And if you make any of these things your all-encompassing loyalty, all others will suffer. And you will indeed hate one and love the other. Or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Basically, simply put, if you haven't put God first... Whether it's whatever you have to do to impress other people or secure yourself financially will inevitably lead you to do things against God's wishes. So then you have to ask, how do you then identify your mammons? Well, let me give you a couple ways. First, what gives you hope when you look for the future? For the students in here, is it that degree that you're going to get and the diploma and the little emblem? By the way, after a little while, nobody cares. Unless you go to Texas A&M University. And you're an Aggie. If you wear an Aggie ring, people care about that stuff. Um, It's the craziest thing. I'm I'm sorry, just to bring up the Texas reference, but it's crazy. I've had people walk into a room and they have an Aggie ring and they're like, oh, you're an Aggie at class. Whoop! And then they do these crazy, like, um, things. And then all of a sudden, like, they literally come out and they got a job. It's like, it's like instant. It's crazy. But anyways, outside of that. (laughs) That's not my plea to go to Texas A&M. Trust me. But when you look at the future, where do you get your hope? And what you hope in is what you find your security in and what you trust. You'll find your mammon. What is your greatest delight is another way. What is your greatest thing? The thing that gives you most joy. That is indeed oftentimes where you put your trust. Another really big one, the thing that we don't like to do is, what do I fear? Trace your fears to the source and it will almost always lead to a mammon. You do everything you can to avoid that fear, and then you will do anything to make sure that that fear isn't realized. And then you put your security and your trust in everything to destroy that fear. A pastor's greatest struggle oftentimes is that he or she fears criticism, and they would do anything to protect themselves against it, or failure. What do you fear? I got to share my story a little bit last night, and I'll just briefly do so, but I grew up in a bit of a rough home. My dad's been divorced a few times, remarried a few times. Thankfully, my dad and I have a wonderful relationship now. God has been so good to us in that kind of way. But when I grew up, the thing that I feared the most was that people would think that I was an F-up like my dad. That was the thing. I didn't want anybody else to think I was just like him. So I did everything to make sure that nobody would ever dare compare me to him oh, you're just like your dad. That was literally, if you ever said you're just like your dad, I might have punched you in the face. And I did everything. Did you know, I cheated through my first first semester of seminary because I didn't want anyone to think that I was a failure like my dad. I trusted my own self-sufficiency, that I was a self-made man, and I got to where I got to because I was smart and I was driven and I was ambitious and I was all these things. Trace your fears all the way down and you indeed find the things that you trust in. And the last little tip that I'll give you is where do I resist God's word? What portions of God's word do I conveniently avoid? Because the parts you avoid or resist usually means that it's touching an idol or a mammon. Not to put Pastor Steve on the spot. But if you find that he just doesn't preach about some of these things or doesn't ever talk about it in the Bible, when you find it, go ask him about it. Hey, why don't you preach about these things? It helps him, actually. Don't worry, he won't hate you. I don't know if he can hate anybody. He's such a nice person. Be careful with me. I might hate you because I'm just like that. But what do you resist? Maybe you'll find an idol or a mammon there. Then the decision three: who am I going to serve? Who am I going to give my life to? And you answer this every single day. You deny yourself. You pick up your cross, and you walk with God every single day. Why? Because each day it might change, or each day it might be a little different. Your changing circumstances may mean might mean that your mammons might change. But again, as we said, freedom is not allowing your circumstance to determine the way that you live. But you live because of the truth that you already know. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? So let's bring it all together. I know it's been a lot of information this morning. I apologize for that in some ways. Actually, I don't because I have to give it to you. But you may have noticed the order in which Jesus speaks these truths or these, you know, kind of anxiety things, right? And it's helpful because this is the way I think it's best to understand your decisions about your treasures will impact your decisions about your worldview. And that will indeed reveal your mammons, and then help you to decide who you are going to serve. Trace the lines. Trace the lines. Do this for yourself. I'll leave the slides or whatever. Where are you going to put your treasures? In heaven or on earth? Or what kind of treasures are you going to treasure? And what will you fill your eyes there for because of what you treasure? And that will indeed affect your world view. And then that will reveal your mammons and help you decide what you will serve or who you will serve. At the root of what you treasure and how you see the world and what you find security in, will then lead to a life that is neither marked by one, anxiety, worry, or stress, or peace, freedom, and joy. Know that anxiety is a thing. Because you and I know deep inside that all of our mammons actually aren't secure. Every mammon, man-made, all stumble and fall. Even the greatest empires and armies who thought they would never die, every single one of them, guess what, has ended. Every single one has their time, except for the one that is eternal. But if we bank our lives on God, if our vision is God, if our all-encompassing loyalty is God and Him alone that you have nothing to worry about because you have peace, rest, joy, life, kindness and all that and guess what, nothing can topple our God do you believe that? like for real, for real does your life reflect that? for real, for real Psalm 23 says surely goodness and mercy will follow me, what? all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh when? Forever. Forever, ever. Forever, ever. Forever, ever. Ever, 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 ever. Echo on in serenity forever. Like, these aren't words that you can kind of twist around and be like, "Does that? what does that mean? No, no, it means forever. That's why when kids sometimes who are a bit insecure, they'll ask their parents, do you love me? Of course I do, forever. So then the question is then how? As I said this at the retreat, I'll say this again. Don't ever let Steve or any other pastor tell you what to do without telling you why and how. So here's the how. I think I've explained the why. First, shift your focus from anxious causes and look to creation. So Jesus tells us to do. He says, look at all the birds and the flowers. In Greek, it's actually he says to start looking, aka you're not looking. You can see it, but you're not actually looking. A friend of mine named B, um, he's in Atlanta now, but he's from uh, uh, he's from Baltimore. He says it's the difference between listening and hearing it. He grew up in the hoods uh, of, of Baltimore, and he grew up listening to like Wu Tang and all that kind of stuff. And all of his friends in the hood, they'd be like, "Oh, you listen to Wu Tang." Right? And he'd be like, yeah, you know, that's my whatever, whatever. And then apparently one of the guys be like, yeah, but he ain't heard that. There's a difference between listening and then having heard it. You may see it, but are you looking at it, right? And Jesus identifies that life is much more than food, drink, or how we look. And Jesus tells us to look at the creation and nature and reality all around us. He's saying, look at the birds. They do nothing to sow or reap. They do nothing to work for the food they eat. All they do is seek, find, and then they eat. What a life. And Jesus says that the birds are taking care of God by in this manner. Then us, don't we realize that we are the crown jewel of God's creation? Did you know? When he created all things, after every single day was done, he looked at it and said, good. Hebrew, me'ot. But after he made humans, you know what He said, tof me'od very good aka perfect lacking nothing so if we are that the crown jewel of God's creation then why worry the reality tells us otherwise he says look at the birds we just look at the flowers how we look how we appear right it's a huge cause of our anxiety what do I wear today what will people think of me what do my hair look like all this stuff a definite mammon for most of us in our lives but he's saying none of that matters either does it? Willard has this funny story in his book he says we worry some of us especially at this maybe I apologize oh, I, I should have I just realized probably inappropriate but anyways we, we worry about how tall we are especially as Asians for those of you who are Asian in the room but he says yeah okay you can treasure your height or worry about it but who adds an inch to his height or her height by worrying about how tall they are Okay, nobody and Jesus says, in truth, if you compare the human beauty to the natural beauty, it doesn't really compare. And then he says, but if you think about what I do in your life, then something happens. Have you ever seen somebody that walks into a room and you know that God has been a part of their life and doing something? They have this glow. Have you ever seen it? It's effervescent. It's like intoxicating. They walk into room, and he's like, whoa, there's something about them. People be like, ooh, you're like glowing today. It's the beauty of Christ shining out. There's a freedom, a lightness about what they live. And to be sure, it's not that their life is going perfect. Oftentimes when life isn't going all that well, but they walk and they live and they sing and they do all these things with just a different vibe. Beauty overwhelms the flowers. So channel, shift the focus from the things that cause anxiety to the things that God has made. Remind ourselves. Then the second thing that we ought to do is to channel then the anxious energy and direct it somewhere else. He says, Seek first the kingdom, then all these things will be added unto you. Again, what Jesus isn't telling us, right, is that we shouldn't work or we shouldn't move or we shouldn't treasure or we shouldn't invest. He's just saying, just know that our seeking, our working, our moving, our treasuring does not make the world go around. Now this word to seek, In Greek, it actually is the uh, continuing present form. Keep on seeking. If you look at the Greek form of this word, it's a very intense word that means to place top priority on identifying and involving ourselves in whatever this is. In this case, it's what God is doing. All else is provided, it says in the translation. First does not mean first in line, but all-encompassing also as well. Basically what he's saying is take all the energy and put it in wanting and having the kingdom. Make that the thing that you do first and foremost. You know enough of scripture to be able to do this. I hope you know. I believe that you get really good teaching in here. We have to put in the work. I've been teaching my kids this idea of forgiveness and repentance since they were literally one. Every time they do something across I have a line I tell them this is the line if you cross this line and go against this line you'll be disciplined instantaneously no no, just nothing about it Just there's no escalation just you cross the line and that's it and they'll get disciplined whatever the discipline is and then afterwards they'll sit down with me and I'll explain to them why it isn't the thing oh this is because this kind of idea is selfish this kind of idea is because you're not caring this is because this is the th- and then we do this and then I help them to understand people are like aren't you being mean Your your child is one And I was like, no, I'm preparing them so that when indeed they can understand the words, they'll want to have a conversation with me. They'll know this process. And afterwards we hug, we forgive each other, we kiss, and then the world is, literally, it goes back to normal. If you ask our kids and then you ask them why they do what they do and what it is, you know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you it's because I'm selfish and I'm sinful. Because Satan is in my heart and not the love of Christ. My second one, he's like... people think he's going to be a pastor because he's always talking about the Holy Spirit and and Satan. And they go, and I say, okay, you go and repent. And they go and repent, they come out, and they go, how was it? They go, I'm forgiven. It's not rocket science. My kids aren't especially more intelligent or holy than yours. Put all of your energy, put his kingdom first, and all these things, he says, will be added unto you. That's why Willard says this. He says, soberly when our trust is in things that are absolutely beyond any risk or threat and we have learned from good sources including our own experience that those things are there. Anxiety is just pointless and groundless. Anxiety only occurs as a hangover of bad habits established when we were trusting things like human approval and wealth that were certain to let us down. See, if you trust in things that will not decay, that will never fail and will never fade, always endure and are indeed eternal, then anxiety becomes moot, it becomes pointless, it becomes stupid. I mean, if your security is in God who is eternal and cannot be defeated, who can literally get up out of a grave because he feels like it? What is it that we worry about? Now, usually, this point is where I think we would finish. And you would walk out of here and be like, oh, that's good, maybe. But my life isn't like that. And yeah, maybe you'll try some of those things. And again, that will be helpful, I hope. But I think to finish here would be actually irresponsible on my part. Because I think naturally the idea or the thing is that when you think about an anxiety free life, one of joy and goodness, that we automatically equate that to one that has no pain, no hurt, no sorrow, or no troubles. But that's not the case. And I wanted to make sure I paint the right picture for you. And if you're wondering why this is, Jesus paints the picture clear for us in the Last Beatitude. When we take on the life of the kingdom, we will be insulted, persecuted, falsely slandered because of him and because of following him. Yes, many people will indeed love you at times, but they will turn on you just as the crowd did. Jesus, in many ways, is the worst pastor on the planet. He couldn't keep anybody to follow him except for the 12 measy disciples and a bunch of women that nobody wanted. And in the end, the people that were screaming his name, young Hosanna, Hosanna, laying down the palm leaves, murdered him, crucified him five days later like he was nothing. Dallas Willard tells a story in his book. Again, I'm so thankful for that. He says, there's a, in, the, in, in the 16th century, there were a bunch of Christians in Holland who were often persecuted and executed when they were caught to be Christians. And apparently one was found, and then he started, he, he, he dipped, he ran. He's running. And I don't know anything about Holland, but... This description makes me feel like it's Michigan or something. So he's running, and that, that he was going, and then all of a sudden right outside of his house was, I like guess, a big old frozen lake or pond or something. But again, it's like the middle of the winter, and I guess it's really cold over there, so, you know, I'm just trying to, whatever. But anyways, so he's going, and he's running. And his chaser, his persecutor, one that would indeed capture him, arrest him, and then he will indeed be executed, most likely was coming after him. He's just running. And as he's running, he's like, you know, got a good chase. All of a sudden, he just, and so he keeps running, and all of a sudden, he just, so he looks back and his chaser has fallen into the lake he's gone he's he's, apparently he's like "Mm -hmm." I imagine like a hand "Mm -hmm." like a movie and so he's and he's like oh right and if you're in that situation what do you do don't answer that question (laughs) but the Christian man hearing the cries seeing that the man went under turned around went back and saved him from death, imminent death in the frozen lake. And this, this chaser, right, was immediately amazed, like, what in the world? You should have, like, let me die, bro, like, because I'm here trying to chase you to kill you, but you saved me when I was, like, you just, but then after he kind of got to his senses, and then he kind of got, got dry or whatever, he was like, uh, but it's my duty. I got to arrest you, bro. So he arrested him, and he was, a few days later, executed. But he did all this because of Jesus. So then you ask then, you go, wait, wait, wait. Uh, mm, 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 nope, not, mm, I ain't doing it. No, I'm not me, bro. Um, I, I mean. But ask yourself, why did he do that? Because he's stupid? Because he's delusional? Maybe it was the cold. You know, it's really cold outside and your brain starts working differently maybe. like Houstonians in the Michigan cold would go crazy but y'all this is like nothing for you right so it's not the cold you know why he did that cuz he's free freedom is being totally secure secure enough to not care about other people's opinions secure enough to not have our behaviors determined by the other people's behaviors Secure enough to have the freedom to not have our behaviors in our lives determined by the circumstances that come. But he was free. I have lots of people in Houston ask me random questions. We encourage them to think and do all that stuff. And one time someone goes, Hi, hey, uh, So, Pete, um, what's your worst case scenario? I was like, That's a really random question. So I thought about it for a second. And this is how I'd answer I said, My worst case scenario is that I die right now in this very moment, whatever the cause. And then I get to be with God for all eternity in a place where there's no tears and no shame, no pain, no hurt. Where the world is so amazing and his presence is so amazing that the streets could be made of gold and I wouldn't give a crap because it doesn't matter to me. And then someone right next to him said, okay, cool, but what about your family? Because, you know, if you die, then what is your family going to do? What is your wife going to do? And funny, like, my wife... She doesn't know any of our passwords like any of our things. They're like, your wife would, you know, and then I was like, God will take care of them. And then somebody then like stepped it up another level. This is how kind of conversations go in my life. Is like then go, um, then are you telling me that you would never own a gun? And if you know, gun is a big issue right now in the world, especially in our country. Like, you wouldn't own a gun? And I was like, I think I know what you're getting at, but no, I would never own a gun. And he goes, so you're telling me that if someone barged into your house with a gun threatened to shoot you you wouldn't have one to protect yourself and your family? And then he thought he got me with that question and I go, no. So you wouldn't protect yourself and your family? I go, no. And he goes, are you serious? Don't you love your family? I was like, of course I do. Then he goes, why wouldn't you do so? And then, and then the smart person was like, and, and don't tell me this BS that you're gonna like you know, take the bullet. Because you know, if you if you take the bullet and you die, he's gonna shoot the rest of them. Like that doesn't help. Very intuitive, very smart. So you're not gonna protect your family? You don't wanna protect your family? Of course I wanna protect my family. But at what expense? I was like, what do you mean, what expense? And I said this. I said, I refuse to own a gun. Because I know who I am, aka I'm a child of the Eternal Father. But I don't know who that man or that woman is, do I? And I know the identity of my wife. And I know and I trust in the identity of my kids. I told this story. Kara came home one day and told my wife that I'm not her real daddy because God Almighty is her real daddy who's perfect. I'm not, I'm, I'm just inclined to believe that God is not going to turn her away because she's never made like the confessing prayer. So if I know who I am and if I know what my security is, if I know where my life is going to be, if I know the eternity of what, who I am, then couldn't I say that if someone is barging into my house with a gun ready to shoot people to take whatever it is I have and I don't have a whole lot in my house then I think I can pretty much say that that person has no idea who Jesus is and if I took that person's life to save mine then that person's life for eternity will not know Christ for what? to save this? save it for what? Well, your family will miss you. Yeah, I'm sure they will. But last I checked, God loves my family eternally more, to the grave, to the hell, and back. I think he's got it covered. This is not bragging. All I'm saying is this is freedom. Where do your anxieties go? If God gives you a heart like this. This is why Jesus on the cross, he's dying. He's being tortured and ruined. In moments before his death. Father, forgive them. He looks at the thieves. Forever he will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself, is there anything that gives you more security and freedom than this? And ask yourself, if you know it, then what will you live for? What will you choose to live for? What will you desire to live for? what will you treasure? Where will you store up for yourself treasures? The ones of the heavenly places or the ones where moth, rust, and thieves can come and destroy and ruin? For where your heart is, where your treasure is, excuse me, there your heart will be also. My prayer for you is that indeed, as you learn Scripture and as you learn the Gospel, there would be so much more than just this. You would choose, knowing what you know, follow Christ. You would deny yourself because you will know that you will treasure things that are not of Him. Is what we do. We're sinful. You'll crucify those things of the flesh. And you'll pick up that cross and you'll daily follow Him. And if you do so, you will have freedom, unlike anything you've ever experienced. Will you take a moment? Ask yourself, what am I treasuring? And the priest team will come and get us ready. But what are you treasuring? What are you hoping for? Where do your securities lie? And if your life is filled with anxiety, don't do what we always do, which is to tell yourself to stop being anxious, but take your eyes and place them on the God of all eternity who not only defeats the grave but exchanges our place with his so that we could be with him forever. And may your hearts and your minds and your everything in your soul be filled with a vision of glory, a vision of goodness, a vision of our Lord God who is unlike any other. And that would give you freedom. I'm going to pray for us and then give you some time to pray and then the praise team will do what they do so well. Let us pray. God, there isn't much to say other than that we are hopefully, by your grace and your spirit, floored at the God that you are. And that we're promised a life like this. We admit that, yeah, to really take it, Some parts, lots of parts maybe, are really scary. They're foreign, intimidating to us. But that is why indeed, when the kingdom comes, we know how poor we are. We know how much we do not have, and that you will fill us with everything that you have. The one thing you ask us to do is to place our gaze upon you, our hearts to treasure you, to want to want you. So help us to do so. Help us to be encouraged that this God who is eternal would go through death and back to make sure that we then would be eternal. And that we look to you. And then even in the midst of troubles and trials, sometimes the storms that you will lead us, we will know that you are with us. Because you are with us, we are good. And then help us to point that light, to point others to that light to know that indeed you are with all, and that all would indeed receive you, give you thanks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Yeah, take a moment, and then the praise team will lead us as we finish our worship.